Hey, y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today, which means that you'll hear two hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson and it's January 15th. The Boston Molasses Flood took place on this day in 1919. Today, folks probably associate molasses more with food or maybe with making rum, but in the early 19-teens, it was a lot more important for munitions, especially because of World War I. Purity Distilling Company, owned by the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, wanted to fill that need and make money. Even before the United States was directly involved in the war, the U.S. was providing munitions to the Allies. So molasses was a big business. To support that whole goal, they built a tank in 1915, but they had a lot of problems. The ideal location for this tank was near both the harbor and the railroad. They needed the harbor to receive all the molasses from the Caribbean, and they needed the railroad to ship it out for processing. So they planned a tank that would hold 2.5 million gallons of molasses. This was 50 feet high and 90 feet in diameter, or 15 meters high and 27 meters in diameter, And between the permitting process and terrible weather and other obstacles, they got way behind schedule and wound up with a team of about 30 men working around the clock to try to get this thing built on time. And they also cut corners to try to make up for lost time and spend less money. The material that they used to build this massive tank was both too thin and too brittle to do the job. When they finally filled this up with molasses, it leaked so much that people in the neighborhood would come scrape the residue off the sides. They didn't really do much to fix that problem. They did caulk some of the worst of it, and otherwise they painted it brown so that the leaks wouldn't show as much. By 1919, with World War I over, the need for munitions had really dropped, but the company still had a license for industrial alcohol. And on January 15, 1919, at 12.30 p.m., the tank which had been making ominous rumbling noises for a while, finally ruptured. This followed some unseasonably warm weather for January in Boston, and the tank was mostly full at the time. When the tank ruptured, its steel plates were torn completely apart, and a 15-foot-high or 4.6-meter wave of molasses raced through Boston's north end at 35 miles an hour. That's about 56 kilometers an hour. This was deadly. The flying debris flew at least 200 feet, knocked down girders of an elevated train. People were knocked to the ground, and then because they were on the ground, people and animals drowned in the molasses. Buildings collapsed or were knocked off their foundations by the force of it all, and even people who survived that initial wave and were able to keep their heads out of the molasses died because they just couldn't get out. Animals that were in that position had to be put down because there was no way to rescue them from this just immobile, sticky mass. Most of the neighborhood's residents were Irish and Italian immigrants. A lot of them did not have a lot of money, and in the end, 21 people were dead and 150 injured. Cleanup took months. 
Investigations of what happened followed. There were 119 separate civil suits that were filed against the company within a year, six years of litigation, and the longest, most expensive civil suit in Massachusetts history followed this. The owners claimed that it had been anarchist sabotage, but there was no evidence that that was true at all. In April of 1925, the state auditor released a 51-page verdict that found the company liable for what had happened. The company later paid $628,000 in damages. Today, some people say that on hot days, you can still smell the molasses in Boston's North End. There's more to this story in the October 5th, 2009 Stuff You Missed in History class. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on the show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a constitutional amendment that did not work out as planned. Hello again, I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History class a show where we drop history knowledge every single day. The day was January 15, 1850. Russian mathematician Sofia Kovalevskaya was born in Moscow, Russia. Kovalevskaya was the first woman to get a modern doctorate in mathematics. She was the second of three children born into a family of wealthy Russian aristocrats. Her father was an artillery general in the Russian army, so the family had to move a lot when she was young. But when she was around six years old, the family settled at an estate near Russia's border with Lithuania. There, Kovalevskaya learned under her English governess and Polish tutor. She was good at and enjoyed writing, and even though too much intellectual stimulation was deemed unhealthy for girls at the time, she read books that were in her family's library. In fact, she said that her father had a, quote, strong prejudice against learned women, and when she was caught with books, he punished her. Still, she continued her studies, and though she wasn't the best at math initially, Sophia had a lot of scholars and mathematicians in her family lineage. By the time she was 15, she had garnered more interest and proficiency in mathematics. She began taking lessons from a mathematician at the Naval School in St. Petersburg. But even though she clearly had a talent for mathematics, she could not continue her education in Russia, since women were not allowed to attend higher education institutions. Sophia was able to attend lectures by academics, but she wanted to go to school abroad, something her father did not support but she needed to get permission to study abroad from her father or a husband. So she decided to pursue her goal by getting married to a man named Vladimir Kovalevskaya, a paleontology student at the University of Moscow. The agreement was that the marriage was a platonic one. They married in 1868. The next year, they moved to Heidelberg, Germany. There, Vladimir studied geology and Sophia took math classes at the university. Her professors had been students of the mathematician Karl T. Weierstrass, so Sophia traveled to Berlin to study with him herself. Her husband stayed behind. The university there forbade women from attending Weierstrass's formal lectures, but Weierstrass agreed to teach her privately, and he did so for the next few years. 
Kovalevskaya ended up writing three doctoral dissertations, and Weierstrass submitted her work to the University of Göttingen. The dissertation on the theory of partial differential equations, which expanded on ideas first posed by mathematician Augustin Louis Cauchy, is considered the most important of the dissertations. She got her doctorate degree in 1874, but she still had trouble getting a teaching position, so she went back to Russia to live with her husband. They had a child, and for a while they put aside their academic work. But Vladimir died by suicide in 1883, and soon Kovalevskaya began working as a lecturer in mathematics in Stockholm. She taught about inverse functions, elliptical integrals, and abelian functions, and she also wrote more papers, some of which won her awards. She earned a lifetime professorship at the University of Stockholm, and she was the first female mathematician to hold a chair at a European university. In her later years, Kovalevskaya pursued a career in writing, authoring a play and novels. She died of the flu complicated by pneumonia in 1891. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Know any fellow history buffs who would enjoy the show? You can share it with them. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast. Or if you want to get a little more fancy, you can send us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. We're here every day, so you know where to find us. Bye. Bye.